When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We had um, lunch one time in his trailer, he and I, and he ate an entire nine-inch boysenberry pie with a fork. No plates, no knives. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Oscar, Golden Globe, Emmy, and five-time Grammy-nominated comedian and actress, Margaret Cho, to the show. Margaret, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. I am so happy to have you here. What we're doing is we're paving the way to hysterical, brand new documentary that you can catch streaming now exclusively on FX on Hulu. But I warned Margaret at the beginning. We start at the beginning on Ladies Night. So my very first question for you is when you first initially pictured yourself making it in the entertainment industry, what did the dream look like to you way back then? And how does that compare to maybe what you consider making it now? I don't even know what I pictured making it as. Like, I never really had a clear vision just because I never saw other Asian American women doing comedy or even um, sort of a path to follow. I just really loved the art form of stand-up comedy and I just wanted to do it. So I didn't necessarily have an idea of like, oh, this will mean I made it. And I've never actually even thought, oh, now I've made it. <laughs> There's never a sense of that. With, with that in mind then, what would you say was, was step one to thinking that you were pursuing a path to kind of, I guess, getting a sense of stability in the industry and confidence? And I know confidence is always hard to come by, but at what point were you like, I'm here and I'm doing it? I think really when I first started doing television, which was probably 1988, or 89, something around there. I was doing television comedy where you would do these five minute sets, whether it was evening at the improv or MTV's half hour comedy hour, that was a really big deal. So those are the things that I think made me feel like, oh, this is the thing that I'm doing that I'm actually on my way. When you were first starting out back then, did you did you ever find anybody pushing you in a particular direction? Like if you wanted to be a stand-up comic, was there anybody in your corner saying, you gotta focus on that? and that alone, and not necessarily acting gigs? No, because I never really had any sort of like uh, thought about acting, or there was never any parts that I could really audition for. There were no Asian American parts. There was no Asian American characters on TV shows. Very rarely would you see Asian Americans do anything in films or television. So I didn't necessarily have any idea that I could be an actor. It didn't come till much later when I was doing television as a comedian that I thought, oh, maybe I could have a show written about me, which I ended up doing in 1994 with a sitcom called All American Girl. But I didn't have aspersions or aspirations to do acting, nor were there any kinds of people trying to help me figure out what to do or where to go because it had never been seen before. So if you had, if you had no help back then, 
I guess I, I guess I would want to know what kind of advice you would give to some up and coming actors right now. And especially thinking about all American girl, I've heard a lot of uh, your stories from that and it's just absolutely crushing to hear to say the least. So having gone through something like that yourself, what would you tell to somebody out there who is maybe, you know, brand new to the industry, very young, who runs into a situation like that and might be afraid to deal with it, might be afraid to raise that red flag when they notice something isn't quite right about this situation? I think the best advice that you could have is really to have faith in your own ability as an artist and to really kind of try to figure out how, how to understand what you like about what you do or what you want to do. Um, my problems really kind of stem from not knowing how to go about what I was doing and not really trusting in my own point of view as being valid. So trust your own intentions, trust your own points of view. That's gonna carry you as far as you need to go. I do wanna backtrack a little because I really like talking about uh, studying art in school and i was reading that you auditioned for the san francisco school of the arts so i was wondering what uh, compelled you to audition for that program and then in the end what did you wind up getting from maybe a more formal uh place to train that you might not have gotten otherwise well i got a lot out of going to school of the arts i got my first uh, comedy partner i actually started off as a duo so my comedy partner was sam rockwell and there's video of us doing our sketches on youtube aisha tyler was actually in our class as well and so she hosted a documentary that was really all about our school and it shows us doing comedy as really young people and um so it gave me an environment to be around artists which i think is the most important part of going to any kind of school where arts are focused like that, you have an environment of artists for people that want to do the same thing. And that's the most motivating thing. What, what's a quality in uh, a partner for a duo like that, that you really appreciated that maybe someone like Sam gave you that you wish you saw in more stand-up comics out there? I think that Sam was really an exceptional artist because he's not only funny, he's also really, of course, everybody knows an incredible actor. And there's a depth of vulnerability that comedians can get to that makes them very powerful. So I think it was tapping into Sam's acting ability and also utilizing that. So he was a perfect partner for me. When you first jumped into acting, is there any part of the production process that was that, that just totally surprised you? Maybe even something, you know, seemingly silly that many first starting out would be afraid to ask about that when you got on set, you, re you realize like, I can't believe that's how that thing works. I think that it's really important to um, just be really prepared with what you're doing as an actor before you go in, because that'll give you the most um, ammunition to sort of deal with the war that is actually like kind of happening on set because you're dealing with the time constraints. You're dealing with um, possibly sunlight or weather or um, the mood of the stars, the mood of the other actors, the level of their preparation, the level of their skill, the um, environment of the set in general. So you have to kind of be so prepared for all of the things that make um, filmmaking so intense, you know, and everybody is devoted to this one thing, which is getting the shot and um, 
it can be very exciting and can be really scary. So I think I wasn't prepared to how much of a group effort filmmaking was or television making was that it's really something that requires the ultimate effort of so many people that it's pretty um, mind blowing if you think about that. With that in mind, if you had to name an unsung hero of a film crew, someone who makes all the difference in your day on set but doesn't get the credit that they deserve for it, what position of the crew would it be? The position of the crew that I think is actually most essential is script supervisor because they're there to really work on continuity and keep the uh, story through line happening through each setup and each set. So a scene can be broken down into multiple sections and the script supervisor is the one that's going to make sure that you have continuity, that you look the same when you're switching shots and switching perspective because something can be done in the morning and then something can be done in the, in the evening, like, and you're not, you're, you're in the same moment, but it's not clear to the audience that you are. You have to be prepared. The script supervisor is really the most important part of keeping that continuity, keeping that reality of the film or television show or story you're in for not only the actors, but for the crew entirely. I feel like I'm always the one looking out for, you know, where the, the drink level is and watching it go up and down throughout a scene. So I always appreciate that kind of attention to detail. Right. I mean, if you're like um, in the world of the Game of Thrones, you've got to know that there's not going to be a Starbucks there. <laughs> very important detail, although I quite enjoyed the aftermath of all that. It's really funny. All right. Let's get into some specific titles. I have to ask you about Face Off. I guess, I guess first, how exactly did you wind up getting cast in that movie? I got cast in the film Face Off because of John Woo, who is a hero of mine, and he directed that. It was his second American feature after Broken Arrow. And um, he was so incredible. And I had been friends with Chow Yun-Fat, who is the star of many of his Hong Kong films and an iconic Chinese actor. And um, so them, along with Michelle Yeoh and I, were in San Francisco together doing a big event for um, Asian actors, Asian storytelling. This is in the 90s. And so I was really lucky to get to be involved in Face Off. And what a big production. I, I know that the film actually, it takes place over a week, but it took us almost a year to shoot. It was um, many, many, many stunts. They actually explode a plane. And they really did. This is like 90s action filmmaking where they could actually explode a plane without CGI. This is before so many of these things were created with CGI. We had none of that. We only had planes and explosives. And, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, going to um, training camps where you would learn how to properly shoot a gun, properly uh, look like you were in the FBI. And um, John Woo had a lot of um, input on making sure that actors were comfortable with how uh, they were physically portraying these characters. You also had a stunt double that was the pretty much the physical 
perfection version of yourself, which is really strange. So I had um, a stunt double and I think John Travolta has like, had like five or six of them, as did Nicolas Cage. Uh, but we all had either one or more people who were our stunt doubles who were doing the stunts and were just um, ourselves, but perfect versions, which is really funny. All those resources pay off big time. I feel like you yes. don't get that that kind of classic uh, 90s action style. Any As much as I am wowed by VFX artists, it's just, it's not quite the same. It's not that reach out and touch it kind of feel. Well, there's a really... Um, it's a really interesting way of making movies where everything is so real and so true. And when there's um, explosives, there's explosions. I mean, that's just a very interesting thing that I had not really seen or been a part of. So I was excited to be there. How about working with John Travolta in particular? Were there... John any expectations going into working with him? And did he surprise you in any way? Well, John Travolta is just like a modern day king in that there's not really American monarchy, but there is in Hollywood, if you think about it. And he's sort of in the last era of the golden age of Hollywood. He's sort of the last movie star in a lot of ways. And so he had this sort of like court around him of different people that he had worked with his particular crew, whether they were his stand-ins or his, his um, you know, stunt doubles or his uh, crew that he would bring from movie to movie. So you would see like sort of the skeletal like remnants of different films he had done over the years. And so that was really interesting. Um, he was a really jovial guy, really fun. We had um, lunch one time in his trailer, he and I, and he ate an entire nine-inch boysenberry pie with a fork. No plates, no knives. I, I feel like I maybe I shouldn't be impressed, but I am. It's, well, ab, it was after a beef wellington also. Lots of pastry. I am the king. Sticking with, um, I guess, the, the big action blockbusters, how did your experience working on a film like Bright compared to Face Off? Because Bright did have a lot of, uh, you know, prosthetics and things like that. But it's a it's a much heavier, uh, like it's, it's a different kind of action film. It's a more modern action film that I'm assuming has a more uh, CG and effects than something like Face Off did. Yes, Bright had a lot of effects and a lot of, creatures it was a real weird thing because bright was actually like a combination of like a sci-fi fantasy film and kind of a hard-hitting crime drama about los angeles so you had a lot of elements that were really interesting and then all of the um at least they were sort of the orcs in bright um had some cgi added later so you had um the base costume which they really look like gorgonzola. They really look just like blue cheese. And then when they were, uh, after they added the CGI, they look really different. It really kind of formed my opinion of Joel Edgerton because I can't see him as anything but an orc because I never saw him in it as anything but an orc. He uh, was orc the entire time. I never saw him out of makeup. So I think that Joel Edgerton is actually an orc. It's hard for me to think of him in his, in his real self. He carried himself so incredibly well in that character. So I feel like you only picturing him as an orc right now from that movie is totally fine. Yeah, he's so orc. 
he's so uh and i remember that whole experience and um will smith and i were getting our makeup done when hillary clinton was giving her concession speech and we were just like we were so upset it was very intensely traumatic time because um when hillary clinton had lost the election and it was like how are we going to do this with donald trump and how did this happen so that was also culturally what was going on in the air around that film never forget where i was when that happened yeah with with bright i guess i'll pose the same question to you about will that i did john because I, I guess I would probably also include Will Smith in that kind of last generation of epic movie stars. So what was it like working with him and did he surprise you in any way? Will Smith is exactly how you think he's gonna be. He's fun, he's friendly, he's sweet, he's hilarious. He's like really easy to get along with on set. He just kind of really sort of democratizes the process of movie making. There's no hierarchy with Will Smith. Everybody's an equal part of the system. I think he even had a Blackberry sidekick, which that's kind of weird. <laughs> I kind of love knowing that about him now. It was weird, yeah. I also really like what you bring up about him uh, democratizing the environment on set. So of all of the films and TV shows that you've worked on, is there any other person who was, you know, number one on the call sheet and had that kind of influence over the whole company and used that power in a really positive way that you hope to see more out there? I think that, um, hmm, I definitely felt that about, um, Will Smith, and I definitely felt that about John Travolta. There was, um, I wonder, like, uh, you know, there's lots of other people. Oh, like Tina Fey, who I worked with a few times on um, different projects, but most importantly for me on 30 Rock. So on 30 Rock, everybody was so famous that on a lot of the shots that you were in, you were actually working with their double. So like if you're in a scene with like Tracy Morgan, I only saw Tracy Morgan like, for five or seven minutes when he was doing his coverage and then you would only work with the double for the rest of it because we were shooting your, your stuff. So, uh, but with Tina, Tina was there uh, from when you got in to when you wrap because she had written it and she wanted you, you to do it exactly as she had envisioned it and she wanted to be there for you. So she was just like off camera right there, so supportive. Um, just incredibly uh, invested and emotionally invested. I mean, something that you never see, but she really is uh, so responsible for that show's success, but at the same time, uh, very uh, grounded about the entire experience. So she's like the probably the most engaged person that I've ever worked with. I love hearing that about people that I admire. Yeah. And bringing up uh, 30 Rock, I do have to ask about getting nominated for an Emmy. Well, cause I'm always just curious to hear about actors, um, you know, experience after getting nominated for these big awards. Did that nomination kind of change the conversation about your involvement in film and television at all? Or was there anything about the whole Emmy nomination process and what has to go down to lead up to the ceremony that might've caught you off guard? I don't think any of it is like, to me, um, anything that would have caught me off guard, I was just really excited to be nominated. I'm excited to 
experience that. It's really fun to be nominated for things. Uh, it's really exciting. I, I like award shows. I like attending. To me, it's really exciting too. So um, I think it really helps sort of legitimize my position as an actor as, um, you know, like there's so much of like comedians who are actors, yet it's something that they don't always like transform. And so I was able to fully transform into somebody else, which for me is very satisfying as an actor, but also that's what you want to be able to do is sort of disappear into the reality of somebody else. So I enjoyed it. And now you're also part of the voice cast of an Oscar-nominated movie. And Over the Moon is just so, so beautiful and wonderful. What a unique animated movie that I feel like I need to see more of. You've done a ton of voice acting gigs before. I feel like it's mostly in television. So was there anything about the Over the Moon voice recording process that was unique to that production? Well, I love being in Over the Moon, and I was a part of the production from um, a brain trust that I had gone to with Daniel Day Kim in 2018 in Shanghai with Pearl Animation Studios, who produced the film. And so I was able to see the initial drawings, the initial designs. I was able to go to Guo Pei's studio. Uh, she had uh, created the costumes for the moon goddess Chang'e. So it's really impressive to be able to sort of see all of the backstory behind what goes into a huge animated film like that. And I really loved being a part of it. It's a very different process when you're doing an animated film as opposed to doing animation on TV. It's still really fun, but it's at the same time, it's uh, a lot more of a character investment, a lot more involvement. And so I was really excited about that. I am rooting for that movie big time. Yeah. Right now. I'm very yeah. excited about it. So, Reality TV. Now, I got to get into some of that because, you know, Mass Singer has a ton of fans out there. Way back when, when the show was first pitched to you, what, what was your reaction to it? Because whenever you remake something, I feel like there's always apprehension. Like, are you just remaking it to remake it or is it going to be as good? So was there any of that apprehension or were you just like, sign me right up? Oh, I really wanted to do it because I was watching the clips of the show. It's a very, very popular show in Korea and also Thailand. And it was just so majestic, the way that they presented the costumes. It was really like this exciting experience. And to me, it was just so much fun. I really love singing. And I think it's so interesting to try to remove context from a singer and context from sort of any sort of public personality. And so that to me was really a thrilling sort of prospect, whether you're like creating the costumes or creating the song experience. It was really fun. This just randomly popped into my mind as you were explaining that. Do you think there's any value in maybe putting a spin on that show and kind of removing who the person is from stand-up comedy and almost doing it that way? I wonder. I think that stand-up comedy is so much about identity. Yeah. So it would be hard to remove the identity from the comedian. Um, not in the same way that song is, because the song has a little bit more um, opacity where you can actually apply to somebody who is unrelated to the song and still have it work. So it's hard to say if comedy is the same type of experience. 
I wonder if it would be a unique challenge, but in all in all the stand-up I've seen, it's it's personality that shines through and makes it special. So I don't want to see that go away, but it kind of sounds like a fun game show idea now to me. It would be. That'd be interesting. I've read a good deal about the intense secrecy that goes into being on that show. So what would you say is the craziest or most outlandish thing you did to keep your identity a secret while you were on it? I don't think that I had to undergo that much secrecy because the show hadn't been uh on the air yet so I was in the first season so people didn't really know what was happening um now I think that that would be very very challenging to figure out how to keep the show contestant secret how to keep identity secret but a lot of it has to do with um, kind of like scheduling people, scheduling different places. Um, you know, there's a, so much that goes into keeping it under wraps. Um, so I think it would be a lot harder now. I, I don't envy those contestants in that respect. Oh, I could also ask you about Dancing with the Stars. How did, uh, how did that experience compare to Masked Singer? I guess maybe which one had you caught up in the competition element of it more? I don't know if the mass Singer really is about a competition as it is just about having a good time to me. Um, the uh, experience of Dancing with the Star is very physically intense. And so you're engaging in dancing like six hours a day. And then the rest of the time you're kind of icing your joints and trying to, um, you kind of build a real rapport with your dance partner. And there's so much that goes into partner dancing that is foreign to me as, you know, I've only had a partner once with Sam Ruckel. So it was kind of like a weird thing to kind of coexist with another performer in that space. But I had a really great time. I think it's physically much more difficult to dance than sing always, but uh, it was fun. You said you liked singing when you were talking about Mass Singer. Are like, are you a dancer too, or was picking up all that technique especially challenging? The, the show makes me, as a non-dancer, that show makes me anxious because I know as hard as I would try, I just wouldn't be able to do it. Well, I am a dancer, but not a ballroom dancer. That's very specific and that's very athletic. And it's something that I uh, really had to get a sort of a very fast education is, I, I, I mean, I was a ballet dancer when I was younger. I uh, danced belly dance. I danced belly dance for a long time all over the world. But going into it as a ballroom dancer, that's a whole different kind of sport. You know, it's really athletic. It's, it's very, very tough. And I really had a great partner. So that was good. I feel like you've done a little of everything. Is, is there bit. anything entertainment wise that you've, you've yet to try that you're dying to? Um, I think that Entertainment wise, I think I don't know. I mean, I think there's like a lot of things that, you know, I, I get really excited about. I like TikTok. I like to watch the dances on TikTok and I like a, I like a dance challenge, but I could never, I could never figure out, like I tried to do the WAP challenge on TikTok and I almost broke my back. I'm like trying to do the body audi challenge. I try to do all the Megan the Stallion challenges and I always fail miserably. So maybe someday. Yeah, at least you're trying, though. I'm not even trying. Yeah. I feel like you get credit for that. <laughs> it's hard. How about sticking with game shows? If you could cast yourself on any game show out there and go in with the confidence that you're going to win it, which game show would you pick? Gosh, I would love to do Jeopardy, but Jeopardy's hard. You know, Jeopardy is really 
for smart people. I feel like, gosh, that would be a great thing to try, but I, I don't know. I, I think that it's really an important show. Um, I'd also like to do like an animal show. Oh my God. I wasn't prepared for a cat. I knew you had a dog. I have a dog. She's over there. This is, um, this is Sacre-Cœur. She oh. hates being held, oh. but I love kissing her. Oh, oh she smells like mushrooms. <laughs> I would I would show you Deputy Dewey, but he's all curled up in his bed right now, and he'd be really pissed if I woke him up. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, we we've been there before. It's no good. All right, buddy. Hysterical now. When you were first approached to be a part of the documentary, what was it about Andrea that made you think she is the right person to direct this documentary? Well, I just really loved the concept, and I loved the idea, and I think that women really need to have more of a presence in comedy, more of a voice in comedy. We are kind of a silent minority in comedy, but the best comedians are always women. So I thought, what a great project. With that in mind, if you could go back to like super young you who had, you know, dreams to go on and, and do all of these things, what, what would young you say about where you are and what you're doing right now that would maybe make her go, huh, like, I never realized that would be possible. I would so be, um, I guess, excited by the fact that I'm such a kind of happy, peaceful person and that nothing really ruffles me. And I think that when I was younger, I was just so worried about everything all the time. And now I feel really like, oh, it all worked out. So it's good. I like that. Even though you're such a big part of the comedy world, is there anything new that even you learned while participating in the making of Hysterical and maybe watching it after the fact that just kind of wowed you about the community? I just think what's so incredible is all of us, all the women who are involved in the film and in comedy really have the same experience, how common it is, and also how little time we really get to spend together. So a film like this is really important so that even if we can't hang out, we get to see each other in the movie. With that in mind, let's go, let's go do a, a top three right now. If you had to name three up and coming uh, comics that we all have to keep an eye out for, names we don't know yet, who would you recommend? I uh, love Robin Tran. She's a really, really funny um, trans woman comedian who is really uh, just hilarious. I love Atsuko Okatsuka, she's very, very funny, like really weird, really surreal, but also a killer dancer and really fun. And Jenny Yang, who really makes me laugh. So there's just three Asian American female comedians that I admire so much. I'm so excited to go look them up after this. I have to let you go in five minutes. So we have to go into ladies night random questions, just some random questions that come to my mind. Let's go with, uh, I actually think I know you have an answer to this one. What new hobbies have you picked up during lockdown? Um, what are new hobbies? Well, I've been um, making a lot of Thai food. I've been um, kind of keeping a lot of animals around here. I've been um, reading, I've been podcasting. I've been grateful that we have sort of an online community. I've been working for the Biden-Harris campaign. I've been um, very active with lots of things where I can be. So um, life is, it's pretty good. It's pretty active, which is good. 
That was a great list of stuff. I have to revisit some of it now because I was going to lean into the the podcast of it all. I was listening a bit to prepare for this interview and I can't recommend it enough. So what compelled you to jump into that? And also, can you talk a little bit about the pivot for season two? Well, season two is really important. It's um, called Mortal Minority, and it's all about the historical context of Asian Americans and hate crimes and where uh, historical meshes with modern day. And so there's like a lot of material there and also going over it with Asian American comedians, I think is really vital. So the first episode we go through the 1871 Chinatown massacre that happened in Los Angeles, along with Helen Hong. Uh, we also get into the Atlanta shooting, which happened on March 16th of this last year. So this is like a very, I mean, this is a very timely subject, but it's also historical. So I'm really grateful to be able to do it. That, that first episode of the second season is excellent. So I highly recommend it to anybody out there looking for something to listen to right now. Going back to uh, the animals thing. So are, are there more animals there than just the two that we've met? There's three. There, well, there's um, Sacra Ke Saudade that you met, and her uh, name means Sacred Heart of Unnameable Longing in French and Portuguese. And the other one is Sarang John Child. Uh, she's also a Sphinx cat. Sacra Ke is deaf, so Sarang John Child is Sacra Ke's assistant. And there's Lucia Caterina, who's the um, Chihuahua to my right. <laughs> we, we have one deaf dachshund in this house mm. and one blind dachshund in this house. So the two of them okay. are a tag team and, and they operate together. And it's, it's yeah. kind of sweet. They work it out. It's great. If you could only have one meal over and over and over for the rest of your life, what are you picking and why? Uh, if I could only have one meal for the rest of my life, I would probably have uh, toso bibimbap, which is uh, mixed rice and vegetables in a hot stone pot. So I've been making that actually, it's Korean dish, and I've been making it through the quarantine. I actually have a lot of stone pots, but I'm not brave enough to get them as hot as they do at the restaurant. So they don't get as hot as I'd like, but I'm getting there understandable. You're talking to a non-cook, so I'm impressed you're making anything at all. Yes. So we always do the last, uh, the same last two questions on Ladies Night. First one is, can you name someone who is changing the entertainment industry for the better in any sector you want? I would say it's Megan The Stallion. I think Megan The Stallion is giving women so much agency, power, humor, beats, dance moves, catchphrases. She's the best. I love it. And this last one, you could take it in a deeper direction. You could keep it light if you want. But this is our, our last question always is what is the biggest fear that you've ever had that you've actually managed to overcome? Snakes. I was really scared of snakes. <laughs> but I have uh, 15 snakes tattooed on my body. And I went to a herpetology convention where I was confronted with hundreds and of thousands of snakes, all in like plastic takeout boxes. So I was able to conquer my fear. I don't know what I was afraid of, but they're beautiful creatures. You actually might be the first person who's come close to helping me with why that question ever came to be to begin with. I feel like the whole time I was just searching for answers for, uh, for a cure for my fear of bees, 
Maybe I need to find find a, a bee convention. Bees are scary, though. There's actually a bee infestation in my yard right now. And um, when I uh, wake up in the morning, there's hundreds of thousands of bees outside that the house sounds like it's buzzing. I, I don't know if I would ever sleep. I don't mean to make scary. it worse for you, but I would have a very No, it's, it's scary. It's weird. Well, hopefully the fact that you have so much to celebrate right now is a good distraction. Margaret, thank you so much for hanging out on Ladies' Night. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And to everybody out there, do go check out the documentary Hysterical. It is excellent, and you can get it exclusively on FX on Hulu. Check it out. We'll see you soon with more Ladies' Night.